So today, we are wrapping up a four-week series called Sex, Gender, and Faith. And uh, four weeks is admittedly not very long to talk about this subject because it's so big, right? Because there's so much, there are so many complex issues that our culture is wrestling with right now. There are gender issues in the workplace, particularly where women are not honored and respected or paid or promoted as much as men. There are issues that parents are facing. There's issues school systems are navigating about how to talk about sex and gender. Health professionals are debating how to navigate certain issues around sex and gender. And of course, the trans community is navigating questions around identity, basic issues around human rights and civil rights and discrimination. And, and I could go on and on, but there's just a lot of issues around sex and gender. And of course, for people of faith, there's always the question of, well, what does Scripture say about this? What, what kind of wisdom can we gain from Scripture or from our faith that will speak into some of these issues? And on one hand, uh, Scripture's really clear about some things what it means to be human, how God sees us, right? But there are a lot of things that Scripture seems unclear about. Or what it does say is wrapped up in the cultural perspective of the people who wrote Scripture. And so to navigate through those things, it's not impossible, but it's not easy either. So, so my goal has been to offer some pastoral reflections as a guide to navigate all of these issues. We can't answer all the questions. We don't have time to look at all the passages in the Bible that, that connect to this. But, but I can try to provide a framework for you and for us together to navigate these questions well. So in the first week, we talked about some definitions and explored some big concepts. In the second week, we went deep into Genesis 1 and 2 because if there's any passage of Scripture that should ground what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves as people, as humans, as males and females made in God's image, it's the stories of Genesis 1 and 2. And these stories don't give us specific answers to all of our cultural questions, but they lay the foundation for how we should start thinking about all of those questions. And then last week, Scott Kingry shared about his own broken experience of sex and gender. And Scott has been a follower of Jesus for many years. He didn't have much time to talk about his faith or his own relationship with God, but he told his story of how gender stereotypes impacted him, wounded him deeply, how he experienced gender dysphoria and how hard and painful that was. And I don't know about you, but listening to Scott, I felt a deep, sense of compassion and sorrow. And so uh, today, I, I just want to pick up where he left off. I want to wrap up this series by talking more about those gender stereotypes and some of the gender complexities that we have to navigate and the gender lessons that I think we need to learn. In fact, I've got seven of them today, seven gender lessons for people of faith. That means these are lessons for all of us, wherever you are on your spiritual journey. Some of us are new to church and faith. Some of us are coming back to church and faith. Some of us don't know anything in our lives but church and faith. 
And some of us were deeply wounded by the church. And that has caused us to question our faith. But however you would describe your faith right now, that pretty much covers all of us, right? So these are seven gender lessons for all of us, wherever we are in our faith. All right, so let's start. Number one is this, many cultural norms regarding gender are harmful. So as we said, gender is socially and culturally constructed. Ideas about what it means to be masculine or feminine. And and that doesn't mean that all ideas or all distinctions between men and women are inherently bad or wrong or, or harmful. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how important sex difference is, that God made both males and females, that one was not enough. One type of human was not enough. It was incomplete. I mean, literally, Genesis says it was not good. So God made both males and females to be different, equal to one another. That's really, really important, but also different from one another. And that difference is most clearly reflected in human anatomy, but those differences will sometimes be reflected in cultural norms as well. And not all norms are inherently bad or harmful or abusive. Cultures will, in different ways and in different times, draw distinctions between males and females that reflect sex difference. But some, and I'd probably say many, of our current cultural norms have become harmful. When they draw distinctions that God never intended, and they create these masculine and feminine ideals that God never intended, then our cultural norms can be very harmful. So, uh, for example, the idea that Scott talked about last week, that boys are supposed to be rough and tumble. They're supposed to be strong. They're supposed to like sports. They're supposed to be aggressive. They, they don't ever cry. They don't ever show weakness. They don't get too sensitive or too emotional. Well, and if they fight a lot, that's just boys being boys, right? Girls, on the other hand, are supposed to be soft and caring and emotional and sensitive, and they play with dolls, and they want to grow up to be a princess who's rescued by a daring knight. And if they do anything active, right, it's maybe dancing or gymnastics or theater. And if they like sports, uh, that's okay. We're okay with that now, but we still tend to see that as crossing a line into boy territory. And I think most of us have learned, or at least we're beginning to learn, how these cultural norms are so harmful when we're talking about kids. And yet, it's easy for us to unknowingly continue to reinforce and propagate these ideas. In fact, we still do it as adults. Most of us have these cultural ideas or ideals that men think and act in one way and women think and act in another way. And I don't mean sex difference. I'm not talking about biological difference here. I mean the gender roles and stereotypes that we assign to men and women that are not rooted in or determined by biology. Like the idea that men should be leaders and women should be followers. Or or the idea that when it comes to conflict, 
Men just want to solve the problem. And women just want to talk about their feelings. That was the core idea of a best-selling book in the 90s. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus, right? Or there's the idea that what men need more than anything else is respect. All men are wired that way. We are wired to need respect from women above everything else. And that women need more than anything else love for men. All women are wired that way. That is the number one thing they need above everything else. They need love and men need respect. And this has been a really, really popular idea. But these are stereotypes. They're mostly culturally formed and constructed ideas. They feel true to us because they reinforce pre-existing ideas that we already had, but they're still stereotypes. Because if you just stop and think about it, they're not true all the time. There are cultures where women are the leaders and men are not. Men are the passive ones. They've embraced different roles because gender roles are often culturally constructed. Or here's another counterexample. I can think of several friends who are married. And when uh, the husband and wife get into a conflict, it's the wife who wants to sit down and analyze the situation and talk about logical solutions. And it's the husband who wants to just keep sharing his feelings, right? Because that's how their personalities are wired. That's who they are. And there's nothing wrong with them because they're not conforming to the stereotypes. Or one more thing from my own personal experience, I've been meeting with a therapist for the last couple of years, just uh, working through some personal stuff. And you know what I've discovered about myself? I've gotten a lot of respect in my life. And I don't need more people who respect me. What I really want is people who just love me. But if I read a book that tells me, well, that's what women want. If that's what you really want right now, you're acting like a woman. That is deeply harmful. And so when we reinforce these gender norms as if they are biological, universal truths about all males and females, it's deeply harmful. Now, uh, gender lesson number two is connected to this. So here, here it is. Number two, sometimes the church makes this worse. We make it worse when we reserve leadership positions only for men. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, so I won't go back into that now. We make it worse when we embrace marriage advice that suggests all men are this way and all women are that way. And as Scott said last week, maybe the way you are it's just because you have a unique and beautiful personality and it has nothing to do with your sex or gender. We make this worse in the church when we pick a few verses or passages from Scripture and we quote them out of context. Uh, like Paul's advice that women should submit to their husbands as if that is their one and only duty. 
But if you read that passage in Ephesians chapter 5, the verse right before that, in fact, it's literally the same sentence in the original Greek. Paul begins the sentence by saying that husbands and wives, men and women, should submit to one another. That's where he starts. Or it's like when we talk about Proverbs 31, which uh, describes a wife of noble character. We focus on all the parts in that uh, chapter where it says she's taking care of the household and she's making the bed and she's dressing the kids in warm clothes as if homemaker is her only role. And when she lives out that role, it is equated with godliness. We skip the verses in that same chapter that describe her as someone who is strong and wise, who does business in the community, who teaches others, who leads the family and whose husband looks up to her. Or we make mistakes in how we picture Jesus. And we equate our picture of Jesus with manhood, right? Sometimes Jesus is described as this macho and manly guy. He's never soft. As if to be soft is somehow inferior or or cowardly or womanly. And it's definitely not who Jesus was. And I don't know about you, when I read the Gospels, most of the time Jesus is meek. He's compassionate. He's humble. He's kind. And yeah, there's a couple occasions where Jesus gets pretty angry. There's a couple occasions where Jesus really stands up in this strong and compelling way, but he also weeps openly and publicly before others. And in the ultimate display of his character, when he's falsely accused, he doesn't fight back. He doesn't pay back. He doesn't get vengeance. He tells people to turn the other cheek. And then he models it by giving his own life away. And then, uh, you want to talk about strength? In that moment, When Jesus is giving his life away and he needs his disciples the most, almost all of his male disciples abandon him. And standing there at the foot of the cross, there's one male disciple named John called the beloved disciple. And the rest are women. Women who followed him and stuck with him when things got hard. You see, when we, as a church, embrace gender roles and stereotypes that were never intended for men and women, we make the problem worse. So, here's what we need. Number three, we need models of healthy men and women. Which means, we need healthy men and women who are both strong and gentle firm and kind, assertive at times, and also submissive to one another. We need a lot more men who know how to better engage their emotions. And we need a lot more women who are better empowered to lead. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, There are men who are gifted to lead in powerful ways, and we should support and encourage the use of that gift. That's why it's called gifting. It has nothing to do with gender. 
Because there's some women who are also gifted to lead in powerful ways too. And we should support and encourage the youth use of that gift. We need both examples. When my daughters were younger, um, they both said to me at different times, they said, when I grow up, I want to be a pastor at New Denver Church. (laughs) I remember thinking like, why in the world would you want to be like me? Why would you want that? And they, you know what they both said? They both said, because I want to be just like Emily. (laughs) See, we need examples of both men and women leading in the church, in homes, in families, in the workplace, in culture. And we need examples of men and women serving and caring and showing weakness and admitting failure and asking for help and embracing humility and displaying a a different kind of strength by embracing humility. See, these are not gendered traits. This is what it means to follow the example of Jesus himself. And others who modeled that when they followed Jesus as well. All right, so that's three gender lessons. Here's number four, and this is switching gears a bit, but it's a gender lesson that we have to learn. Number four, the experiences of transgender people are extremely diverse and often painful. Uh, Scott talked about the trans community last week, and there's a saying that I've heard that I think is really helpful. In fact, it comes from a book um, titled Embodied by Preston Sprinkle. He says this, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. Right? Because just like non-transgender people, there is so much diversity. And so to make any generalized statements about the transgender community, it's not helpful. It's harmful. It's painting so many different people and all of their stories with one brush. And so those of us who are not transgender need to learn that the experiences of transgender people are extremely diverse. They're just as diverse as the experiences of non-transgender people. Now, they're also often very painful. Talk to any transgender person and they will probably tell you that they have often been made to feel like they don't fit, like something is wrong with them. Not just in culture, but particularly in churches. Now, I know there are complex issues around why people transition, when people transition, how people transition, and especially around younger people, adolescents. And I don't want to minimize those questions and issues. In fact, uh, this book, Embodied by Preston Sprinkle, I I think it's a great introduction to some of the issues and how people of faith might begin to think about them. Uh, There's some other books I could recommend as well, but if you want to go deeper um, into wrestling with some of these issues, pick up this book or come talk to me and I can recommend other books and you can dig deeper into that. But this is what is most important. 
Let's always start from a place that everyone's story is different. Everyone's story includes pain and wounding. And everyone wants healing and wholeness, right? Everybody, gender, uh, transgender people and non-transgender people, right? We may all seek it out in different ways, but that is what we all ultimately want. We all want healing and wholeness. And for too many people, particularly women, transgender, LGBTQ, the church has not been a place where they found healing and wholeness. So let's remember this lesson. The experiences of transgender people are extremely diverse and often painful. Number five, we can support individuals and families wrestling with gender dysphoria. You see, there are individuals and families silently suffering with all kinds of issues, right? We all have issues that we, that we bring into uh, our, that we have in our lives and that we're carrying, but there are people silently suffering with gender issues and particularly with gender dysphoria. And we can and should support them. Now, uh, Sunday morning may, may not be the environment where that happens, right? We're not going to start going around publicly every single Sunday and asking everyone to share all the burdens they're carrying and all the things they're suffering with. And like, that's, that, that's not how it's done. And there's not even going to be like a program for this. But it means as a community of faith, we can begin to figure out how to open up space and hold space for those who are hurting in all sorts of ways. And we begin to learn how to help one another and pray for one another and encourage each other and walk through these things together. And again, that's not going to be a church program. And it's not going to be something you sign up for. And it's not going to be something that just the pastors do. It's something that we all do together. And that leads to number six. Six, we must be the most supportive, nurturing, compassionate environment to help anyone who wants to grow in their relationship with Jesus. That's our goal. That's our mission at New Denver. That will always be our focus because we deeply believe here that the healing and the wholeness we're all seeking in our lives is ultimately found and formed and worked out in a growing relationship with Jesus. And so everything we do drives in that direction. Now, there might be some unique ways we live that out that's different from the way other churches live that out. We might have some unique or certain values that we uphold. In fact, I would even say as a church, we have a unique personality, right? Because churches are kind of like people. They have different personalities. And that's okay, and that's great, and there's a lot of diversity. But I'm not talking about personality here. I am talking about our heartbeat, our character, what is deep inside, what is compelling us as a community to be who we are. And for us, that will always be the person of Jesus. We want to be moving towards Jesus. We want to look like Jesus. We want to welcome others like Jesus who loved and accepted everyone who came to him and he offered healing and wholeness to anyone who ever wanted it. And that included wealthy people and poor people, religious leaders and the religiously marginalized, people with good reputations and people with bad reputations. 
And so we will continually ask here, at least at New Denver, we will continually ask, are we embodying Jesus? Are we being the most supportive, the most nurturing, the most compassionate community of faith that exists simply to help people, invite people, anyone who wants to participate with us, to join us as people who are all pursuing a growing relationship with Jesus. And this leads to one final lesson that I want to close with today. Number seven, we must embrace a foundational truth that core identity is always found in Jesus. Um, We live in an interesting cultural time. We talked about this this past fall. It's a time that's really new in modern history, at least in the modern West. We live in this period where we're all searching for something called identity. We look for it in our work and in our accomplishments. We look for it in a certain image or reputation that we want to express or uphold. We look for it in the roles that we embrace. And it's like we try on these roles and these identities like clothes to see if they fit who we think we are. But more importantly, we try them on to see if other people will like them on us. If other people will affirm that identity in us. And whether we're aware of it or not, there are a lot of gendered elements and roles wrapped up in our search for identity. Sometimes we embrace an identity to conform to unhealthy gender stereotypes that we're not even aware of. Some of us create an identity to show everyone else how much we're against all the dominant gender stereotypes. But whatever it is, as we keep trying these identities on and working so hard to to receive and and get affirmation in them, I, I almost think Jesus is looking at all of us and saying, man... It's no wonder you're so tired. It's no wonder you're so exhausted. You think it's up to you to create your identity, and it's not. You're already unique. You're already precious in my sight. You're already made in my image. You've been made a new creation in me. You're already my son, my daughter. Your identity is found in me. And if we can each embrace that truth as individuals, then I think we'll find, or at least begin to find, the healing and the wholeness that we seek. And if we can embrace that truth as a church, well then we'll be the community faith that God made us to be. Let's pray. God, I pray for anyone um, who's here or listening to this message. I pray that you would help us to seek out the healing and the wholeness that we just so long for and need. I pray that you would Give us the courage 
to look to you for that. And I pray that you would help us as a community of faith be a place where we're all pursuing that and we're all can begin to find that in you. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.